need a rest from the world's headlong rush to Christmas? Some place where you and your family can slow down and prepare for Christ's birth at the church's rather than the world's pace? A midweek evening Advent service is the perfect time for your first visit to a Christ-centered, cross-focused Lutheran church. Learn more on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org or send an email to talkback at issuesetc.org. If you've ever known someone in your life who has really struggled to find happiness and then they find what they think is going to be the thing that's really going to bring them fulfillment and it's something that you know full well isn't going to do it and you tell them that, they just simply get angry and they'll shut anybody out of their lives who keeps being that voice of conscience to them because that's what they're trying to silence is they can't silence their own conscience so they're going to try to silence yours. That's Pastor Hans Feeney talking about transgenderism and the conscience. Got to thinking, it's a good opportunity to talk about the conscience again with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. The Bible has a few things to say about conscience. Luther famously said, the 16th century reformer said, it is never wise to go against conscience, but how do you know when your conscience is telling you the truth or when your conscience itself has been deceived or seared or hardened or in some way, misinformed. Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's time to have that conversation with Pastor Wolf Miller. He's pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller One, and he's author of an essay titled Teaching the Conscience to the Youth, a Survey. Brian, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. So you heard Pastor Hans Feeney's comment about the conscience and transgenderism. What are your thoughts? I think it's a really brilliant point and has a expansive application because we all have a conscience, which is this part of our inner life that recognizes what's going on. It's sort of a internal awareness and also a judge. So the conscience is always making a rule, a judgment. The, the thing that I did was good or bad. The thing that was done to me was good or bad. That conscience is a God-given gift, but the conscience is a very malleable tool it's like a windsock in some ways, and it can be influenced from the outside. And I think there's probably four different ways or four different things that we can identify that influence the conscience. But we notice then when, when someone is acting as a conscience externally, it's amplifying that guilt that the conscience is bringing to you. You want to cut them off, you want to shut them down, and you want to try to isolate yourself from that external echo of the conscience in the hopes of having a good conscience. It doesn't work. It's a doomed attempt. In fact, it's just going to make things worse, which we can understand as we lean into this a little bit. We see it all the time, trying to silence the voice of your peers and of the culture and of the law, God's law, man's law, even natural law, trying to shut those things off, all in an attempt to to silence the accusations of the conscience and make it easier to excuse what I'm doing that I know is wrong. I want to come back to that point that the conscience in us, in fallen sinful creatures, is necessary and good, but it's not infallible. I want to come back to that in just a second, but what does Scripture have to say itself about the human conscience? It's only in the New Testament, the word conscience, not in the Old Testament. If we want to look for it in the Old Testament, it's probably included in the word heart, which is the way that the Hebrew prophets are going to 
talk about the entirety of our inner life, our mind, our will, our feelings, and our reflection on all of those things. In the New Testament, the word conscience comes in, and I think the most important text is Paul's text in Romans, where he talks about the Gentiles who don't know the law of God still have a conscience that either accuses or excuses them. So these are the two chief acts of the conscience, to accuse, you did wrong, or to excuse, well, you did wrong, but it wasn't your fault, or it wasn't that bad, or maybe it wasn't even wrong. Maybe it was the right thing to do. So that conscience is that part of us, according to St. Paul, that even the Gentiles, even the pagans have, that are making those accusations. And not only what we do, but most especially what other people do to us. Dr. Jay Budashevsky, who teaches down the street here in Austin, has written a number of books about the conscience. And one of the things he points out is that while we can harden our consciences to our own sins that we commit against others, it's almost impossible to harden our conscience against the sins that other people commit against us. So I could gossip all day, not even notice, but someone says something bad about me and it gets back to me, I'm all outraged. The conscience is inflamed. I can't believe they would do that. So our conscience is monitoring our own actions towards others, others' actions towards us, other actions towards others, what's going on in the world. And it's making all of these judgments about the goodness or badness, rightness or wrongness of all these things. What does scripture say about the conscience of the unbeliever? Well, it says that the unbeliever has one, which is important for us to know. So it's part of God's created order. But it also talks about being able to have a bad conscience or an evil conscience. But I think it's important for us to recognize that every one of us is motivated toward a good conscience. Just like when you're hungry and your stomach is telling you that something's missing, that something's wrong, that you need to eat, but it doesn't tell you what you need to eat. So the conscience is there. It's this moral, even theological or religious impulse in every single person that's telling us that something's not right about us and about the people around us and about the world, but it doesn't tell us what the solution is. So it's a curious and, and I think useful exercise to watch the things that that we do, but especially to watch the things that our neighbors do and our unbelieving neighbors and try to interpret it in light of the conscience. If you think of the conscience as a little courtroom and the way it's supposed to work is we're the one that's being tried and Moses is there with the commandments and Christ comes to stand in that courtroom and he pleads his blood, his suffering and death. And that's what gives us a good conscience to stand before God. But most people take up the role of defense attorney in their conscience and they're making an argument for their own goodness or especially now for their own worth or for their own meaning. And if you have that in your mind while you're watching the news or whatever, everything starts to make sense. Ah, this is fighting to have a good conscience, but not having the equipment that's needed to have a good conscience. And the result is an evil conscience, a polluted conscience, a callous conscience, all these other words that the Bible uses to describe what happens when the conscience gets twisted up. So it's not a self-contained system. It needs to be informed, and it will be informed by something. You have actually a list of four things that inform the conscience. I notice this any number of times in my own life. So maybe just a couple of stories to sort of illustrate how sensitive the conscience is to its own environment. And, and it's basically to say that we're able to switch 
operating systems, an understanding of what's right and wrong almost instantaneously. When I was a young man in high school, I, I'll admit, confess, I suppose now that I had a filthy mouth. I would swear all the time. I don't know how I picked this up, but it just was what I was doing. But I guarantee you that never did a dirty word cross my lips when I was at home. If my parents were in earshot, my conscience was instantly tuned to use a totally different set of words. And that continued even just as an example when I remember one time I was out in the backyard and I was talking on the phone to another pastor and Andrew was on the swing. He was probably three or four years old or something. And I was talking about someone who had done something pretty foolish. And I said to the other pastor, oh man, that guy is a real dummy. And Andrew jumps off the swing and says, oh, dad called someone a dummy. He runs inside to report this to Carrie. The same thing happened, you know, as you grow older, that whoever you're around, you automatically adjust the way that you're speaking. Now, one of the parts of our Christian sanctification is we want to have an integrity between the way we act when people are around and the way we act when people are not around. But the people that are around us instantly affect our conscience. We tune in to their own standards of what's good and bad, of what's right and wrong, of what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. We noticed it first in our language, but it also affects our thinking and our actions. So on our list of the four things that affect the conscience, the first one is our peers. And this explains so many things, why we act differently at home and at church than we do at work or when we're out. It explains why the way that we speak changes, the way that we think changes. It explains the importance of peer pressure. And I think this is especially important for us to realize, because for whatever reason, we feel that peer pressure when it's exerted on us. We don't feel the peer pressure that we exert on other people. But it's really important for us to recognize that as friends or as peers, that we carry with us an influenceable conscience, but also that we influence the conscience of those around us. So one of the ways that the Christian blesses their neighbor is by helping them to have a good conscience. That is a conscience that knows what's right and wrong, truly, and a conscience that knows the forgiveness of sins. That's what it means to have a good conscience. And so we want to recognize that not only is that influence from our peers toward us, but that we also influence other people, and we want to be good stewards of that influence. So we've talked about those four ways that the conscience can be informed. The first one is an infallible way of informing the conscience. That is God's Word. But that doesn't mean that the Christian conscience itself is infallible, does it? Yeah, that's right. So the conscience is kind of like a home plate umpire who is sitting there making the judgments, striker ball, striker ball. The conscience is the same way, but just like an umpire doesn't always get it right, so the conscience doesn't always get it right. And another part of our sanctification is to calibrate our conscience. If we could think of it like this, the Ten Commandments are given to us to calibrate this very sensitive instrument of the conscience. So if I have a broken conscience, maybe I don't recognize that some particular sin that I'm doing is even wrong. There's been so many times as a pastor when I've been talking to, to a person, I said, hey, you know, that's a sin. And they said, really? They didn't even know. So the conscience didn't even have a chance to indicate to them that what they were doing was wrong because it hadn't been calibrated by the Ten Commandments. In fact, not only do the Ten Commandments point us in the right direction, 
You should worship God and not the idols. You should treasure his name and, and not despise it. You should honor your father and mother and not rebel against them. You should care for your neighbor and their bodily needs instead of fighting against them and being angry. You should be chaste and decent sexually in every way rather than lustful and adulterous and so forth and so on. So that the Ten Commandments point our conscience in the right direction, but they also sensitize the conscience. So you might have a person, just take the Seventh Commandment, you shall not steal. And they would know that stealing someone's house or robbing someone's bank account is wrong. But ought to fudge a little bit on your taxes, that's understandable. In other words, there's degrees of breaking the commandments, and our conscience becomes hardened against those particular sins. One of the wonderful benefits of meditating on the Ten Commandments is it starts to soften our conscience so that those sins that we don't even feel because of the calluses that overlay the conscience, that we start to feel them. It's really wonderful. It's one of the marks of a Christian that they have a sensitive and tender conscience to those things that don't even trouble the world. And so the Ten Commandments point our conscience in the right direction. They align our, it aligns our conscience with the Ten Commandments. And it also sensitizes our conscience so that we're able to recognize when we do violate God's law, even not maybe it's not by what we do, but what we say or think. And that tender conscience feels the pain of the sin and repents and rejoices in the Lord's mercy. We're discussing Informing the Conscience. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, author of an essay titled Teaching the Conscience to the Youth, a survey is our guest. How can the conscience be made bad? from the world's headlong rush to Christmas? Someplace where you and your family can slow down and prepare for Christ's birth at the church's rather than the world's pace? A midweek evening Advent service is the perfect time for your first visit to a Christ-centered, cross-focused Lutheran church. Learn more on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org or send an email to talkback at issuesetc.org. What is eternal life? How do you understand it? How do you imagine it? We're full of all sorts of ideas of what eternal life might be like. And yet, the scriptures are clear. Eternal life centers on Christ and him crucified for the sins of the world. The November issue of the Lutheran Witness explains some of these misconceptions about eternal life and what the scriptures say. So to learn more, pick up your copy of the November issue of the Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, teaching you to interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Your lifeline to the Lutheran worldview. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time.
At Zion Lutheran Church, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, we've adopted the motto, A Changeless Christ for a Changing World. While many congregations try to market a message that appeals to what a changing world wants, we continue to give a constantly changing world what it needs. A changeless Christ in word and sacraments like the church has done for 2,000 years. If you're in Chippewa Falls and would like to have the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and salvation that Jesus won on the cross and delivers today in His church, please join us poor miserable sinners. For more information, visit cfzionlutheran.com. Ad Crucem is offering journal line notebooks personalized with your name and choice of favorite Christian image. Check out these notebooks in addition to other great Christmas gifts at adcrucem.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. We're talking about informing the conscience with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Brian, you discussed earlier these influences on the conscience. How can the conscience be made bad? You're right. There's a number of ways that the devil attacks the conscience. And just to sort of circle around to these four things that affect the conscience, just so we have them listed out clearly, we have God's word, God's law, but also man's law, culture, and peers. And when I'm trying to defend my self and my sin, I'm trying to change all four of those. I have to change my peers, change the culture I'm in, change man's law, change God's law, so that those stop accusing me. And I think if I can change those four, this is the plot, if I can change those four, then I can be safe from the accusations of the conscience. It doesn't work because while those four things inform the conscience, the conscience is still there working. But you see, when when there's a sin that wants to become popularized, this is the plot. You could take divorce in the 50s, or you could take the question about gay marriage in our own century, and you could see this as the plot. I, if I can change my peers, my culture, man's law, and God's law, then I can have a protected conscience against this violation of the law of what God has put in place. And so the whole thing shows itself to be a plot for a good conscience, but you can't get there that way. That's not the Lord's appointed way to get a good conscience. You could silence Moses. You could put duct tape over the mouth of God's law and man's law. You could isolate yourself and have only people that agree with you and only culture, art and music and whatever that supports your own lifestyle, but it's still not going to bring contentment. That's only found in Christ. So that's one of the ways to have a bad conscience is to have a misinformed conscience. Someone there telling you that what is wrong is right or someone telling you that what is right is wrong. So you can have a, a conscience that doesn't feel guilt over sin, or a conscience that feels guilt over what's not sin, that's false guilt. Uh, so those are all different ways for the conscience to go awry. I want to kind of get practical here for a second, because we've been speaking in the abstract. How does one rightly inform one's conscience using those four sources that you talked about. Right. Well, if we start with God's law, we meditate on the Ten Commandments. And in fact, when the culture, which we have less influence over, and man's law, which we probably have even less influence over, when it doesn't help the conscience, the Lord's word stays the same. So the chief thing for the Christian, and I think this is why Luther sends us to work singing a hymn of the Ten Commandments every day, as his, his catechism instructs us to do, is that the Christian, as 
we meditate on the Ten Commandments, that is informing the conscience, calibrating it, sensitizing it, instructing it, giving it kind of, um, it's like making sure that the gears have grease on them. It keeps everything running really smoothly. In the other three ways, man's law, culture, and peers, it's good for us to fight for laws that are in line with natural law, for laws protecting life, especially the life of the innocents, for laws protecting marriage, Sixth Commandment, property, Seventh Commandment, the good name of the people around us, and the capacity to have news, that's the Eighth Commandment, good judges and so forth, to support obedience to authority rather than rebellion against them, Fourth Commandment. So it's good for us to try to affect man's law as much as possible so that it is a support to the conscience and not an obstacle to it. And the same thing is true for culture. If Christians realize how much the culture has an influence on our own consciences, and this would be culture high and low, so art, music, pop culture, the stuff that we're seeing and consuming, the things that people are talking about, the, the shared cultural experiences, all of this, that if Christians could recognize the profound influence of the culture and art on people's consciences, I think it would inspire us to be doing so much more to invest in the arts, to support good, thoughtful Christian artists, and to consume these things, to put our money where our mouth is. It's a great thing to think, for example, it's Christmas time, and one of the things that I can do is invest in Christian art for my home and for the homes of those that I love to try to shape and influence the conscience. That's that's one thing. And then when it comes to our peers, we want to recognize that, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which is an odd place to say it, that bad friends ruin good morals, that the peers that we have, the people that we associate with, that our friends that we choose really do matter. And we recognize that if I have friends that are not Christian, they're going to bring an influence on my conscience and that I'm there to also influence them. So when it comes to the question of peers, we want to make sure that we lean into the biblical doctrine of the vocation of friendship. We want to be good friends and have good friends. It's the importance of our Christian youth having good friends. It's also one of the reasons why adolescence is so difficult, because your peers go from being your parents and your brothers and sisters to being the people at school. One of the reasons why college is so difficult is because the family is almost excluded from your peers and you're just around people your own age. That's a very difficult thing to manage. And a lot of times people, when they get married and have children and their peer group becomes their family again, it's a safer place for them. They come back to church a lot of times. It's just better. The family is a safer peer group than friends for the conscience. And it's just good to know that, especially if we're in those stages of life where most of our peers are friends and not people in our family. Speak about what you call the terrified conscience. Yeah, there is a way that every conscience is troubled. And that is, every conscience knows that we have not done everything that we should have done. Nobody's perfect. We, we have a cliche like this, nobody's perfect. To err is human, this kind of stuff. And that, I think, is a troubled conscience. And sometimes we think that as we preach the law to people, God's accusing word, we think that a troubled conscience is enough. But th the problem is that if, I, if, the, if my problem is a troubled conscience, I've made some mistakes. 
then the solution is probably going to be, I'll just try harder next time. I'll just do better. It's going to be in myself. But a terrified conscience, and this phrase is used all the time in our Lutheran confessions, a terrified conscience is a conscience that doesn't just realize that it's made mistakes, but realizes that those mistakes are offensive to God. This is the Psalm 51 terror where David, who had sinned against just about everybody, says, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. So a terrified conscience realizes that God himself is the one who is offended by our sinfulness, by our actions, and so forth. And he is justly angry for our own sin. In other words, a terrified conscience realizes that the problem is not just my sin. The problem is the wrath of God because of my sin. And the solution for a terrified conscience is only Jesus. His suffering, his death, his agonizing sorrow, his carrying our sins, his being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and dying in our place on the cross, his substitutionary atonement. That is the only thing that rightly calms and satisfies and brings peace to a terrified conscience. Because a terrified conscience recognizes, I can't fix this problem myself, but the problem is with God. So God's going to have to fix it. And God be praised, he does when he sends his only begotten son to die for us on the cross so that we can stand before the Lord with a good conscience, not a conscience that is making it through because I've muffled all the accusing voices around me. No, a conscience that knows that when we die and stand before the Lord in judgment, that we are already declared righteous and holy and innocent and acquitted and we're covered in the robes of Christ's righteousness, white robes made white by the blood of the lamb. That is the good conscience that the Lord wants all of his people to have before him. And then with that good conscience, we go and serve and love our neighbors according to our vocation. And we even start to have a good conscience toward our neighbor. That's just a beginning baby good conscience, but we have a completely full grown all the way 100% good conscience, knowing that on the judgment day, the Lord will appoint us to stand and inherit the life that he's prepared for us. That's wonderful. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is our guest. We're discussing informing the conscience. Next, we'll talk about three estates that function as walls to protect the conscience. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Deaconesses are women trained to share the gospel of Jesus Christ through works of mercy, spiritual care, and teaching of the Christian faith. The word deaconess means servant. Find out more on how you can serve in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod through the vocation of deaconess at lcms.org deaconess. Working in faith. 
laboring in love, remaining steadfast in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. LCMS Deaconess Ministry, lcms.org slash deaconess. Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, Freedom, Vocation, Concordia University, Chicago, cuchicago.edu. Our subject is Informing the Conscience. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Wolfmiller, you say that there are three estates that function as walls to protect the good conscience. What are they? Yeah, the three estates are the church, the state, and the family, which are the institutions that the Lord has put in place. Sometimes Luther calls them the three governments. They're the three places that we live. We're all part of the family and the state and the church. At least we should be. And in those different estates, the Lord has different authorities, different powers, different gifts to give. In the family, he gives life. In the church, he gives eternal life. In the state, he protects life. And so we live in all these estates. They serve in one way as a protection against the assaults on the conscience. So when I'm living in the family and I'm living in the church and I'm living in a well-ordered state, they become like a bulwark, like a city with three walls. We notice that one of the side effects of the collapse of these institutions, say the state is not functioning like it should, or say the family is broken, or say the church is teaching false doctrine, it's almost like a breach in the wall that is there to protect the conscience. And it gives the devil access to trouble the conscience, to afflict the conscience, to get after the conscience. So one of the things as we are trying to support good and godly families good and godly churches, a good state and righteous state, that we're building up these walls that the Lord has put in place to ward off the assaults on the conscience. Can the conscience be a teacher? Yes, but you have to be very careful. So the conscience tells you, if you compare the conscience to the stomach in this way, your stomach will grumble but it doesn't tell you what to eat. It could just just grumbles and you just you could grab some asparagus or you could grab a Twinkie. It doesn't have that capacity to bring the decision about what's going to be good for you or not. So when your conscience is troubled, it's an indication that something's wrong. But we have to be very careful that the diagnosis of the conscience is informed by the word of God. So we don't certainly want to self-diagnose. I was listening to the story one time of a guy who was, he divorced his wife and then he w- went and bought an electric car. 
<laughs> now he's going to appease his guilty conscience by doing something good for the environment. You, you just have to be careful that that our natural reason is going to always present to us alternative ways to have a good conscience that are going to try to do an end around to the Lord's only appointed way, the law and the gospel. The conscience can indicate, hey, something's wrong. You need to get this thing checked out. But the conscience should not, it was never meant to try to stand on its own. What's the goal with regard to the conscience? Yeah. The Lord's goal is to give us a good conscience. That comes in two ways, which we've mentioned before. I have a good conscience before my family and before my congregation and before the world by serving them according to my vocation. So Paul, all the time, talks about how he has a good conscience, clean conscience. There's no accusation. It's because he's been faithful in his work as an apostle. It's great. God be praised. That's the good conscience of love. We strive for that every day. We, we want to be above reproach. And when we fail according to our vocations, we want to confess our sins and we want to ask for mercy. We want to get after it. But the chief matter of the scriptures and of the life and death of Jesus is to deliver us a good conscience before God. And that does not come by love. It does not come by works. It does not come by our own efforts. It's a gift of God. It, it is the gift of the gospel, the gift of the absolution and the forgiveness of sins. The only way to have a good conscience before God is when the Lord comes and tells us, you are clean, you are holy, you are righteous, you are forgiven. I am appeased by the death of Jesus, and so I am not mad at you. My anger has been turned away. Be comforted. The Lord tells us that when we see him face to face, on the face will be a smile. That is the truly good conscience that the gospel delivers to us, and it is so precious, Todd. You imagine how much would someone pay to have a good conscience. Like if you had a store next to the Good Feet store and you had like the Good Conscience store, how long would the line be for the world to come and line up to get a good conscience? But that's what the church is. It's the good conscience distributor. That's what the absolution is. That's what the body and blood in the supper is. That's what baptism is. It's cleansing our conscience by the blood of Jesus so that we know that all our sins are not held against us that all the things that we've done wrong, that our conscience rightly accuses us, that all of them have been set aside by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that is such a profoundly precious gift that the Lord gives, desires to give, is constantly given uh, to his people. How great that we can say to the world, hey, come here. This is why you come to church. Come here and leave with a good conscience, with a conscience set free, with the accusing voice of your conscience silenced, not by your own attempts at silencing it through drugs or self-deception or whatever, not by your own attempts to mute the accusations going on around you, but silenced by the one who hung on the cross for you to give it to you, this good conscience. This is what we have to offer the world. What? a profound gift. Let's end how we started with Pastor Hans Feeney's comment about transgenderism and the conscience. What do we do when friends, relatives, or coworkers shut us out of their lives when we try to be a voice of conscience to them? Yeah, this is going to be really difficult because 
God's law is like an island in the middle of an ocean that is racked by a storm. It's tsunami kind of weather out there. And people are on the boat and they see the island, which is unmoving, and it seems to them to be the worst threat. That's going to be the shipwreck, the thing that doesn't move, the thing that stays still. But the island is their only hope. A lot of people are shipwrecking into this island, but we got to be there on the beach to scoop them up and say, hey, we're, we're here for you. The Lord delights in you and so forth. If there's a way to give them the language to understand what's going on, then this is really helpful. How's your conscience? What's going on in the conscience? What happens when, when you hear something, someone say something you don't like to hear? How do you think about it? Just to even alert people to the fact that they have a conscience and that's what they're struggling with. And then once they realize that to say, hey, I'd like to be helpful because the Lord has done everything he's done so that you can have a good conscience. The end of this whole thing is not Moses, but Jesus, but it comes only through repentance and faith, not through obfuscation and accusing and excusing. So we got to go through the Ten Commandments to get to the creed. We got to go through the you shall not to get to the it is finished. We got to go through the sin to get to the forgiveness of sin. That's the way to a good conscience. And maybe it's enough, Todd, for us to know that, to know that that's the way things go and pray for wisdom in these conversations for the opportunity to bring people through this, to let them know that we don't hate them and God doesn't hate them. And that's the whole point is that the, the Lord has given them all these gifts, including the gift of their body, and would have them to be thankful and rejoice in these gifts rather than to reject them. So that's a couple of hints at maybe a direction for conversations. It's not easy though, especially when people are trying to to shut down their conscience. They're motivated like a mama bear is motivated to protect her cubs. People are excessively motivated to defend their own case of their righteousness. And so it's tender conversations and violent territory to enter into. So we want to do so with wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He hosts Theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and he's author of an essay titled Teaching the Conscience to the Youth, a Survey. You can read it at issuesetc.org. Click Talk on Demand Archives. Brian, thanks. Thank you, Todd. Folks, if you know high school-aged men and women interested in serving the church, encourage them to attend Christ Academy High School. Christ Academy High School is June 18th through July 1st on the campus of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. You can learn more at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Christ Academy High School. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll continue our Opponents of Jesus series talking with Dr. Curtis Giese about the Sadducees. We'll have Pastor David Peterson lead us in a teaching on Jesus' warning about not forgiving others their trespasses and its media coverage of religion with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. 
Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. This is Pastor Tyler Arnold of Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. The Saints at Village are proud to be an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. If you are in the St. Louis area, join us for the Divine Service at 8.15 or 10.45 a.m., Bible study and Sunday school at 9.30 a.m., as we receive Christ's promise of salvation and forgiveness through word and sacrament. You can find us at villagelutheranchurch.org. Village Lutheran in St. Louis welcomes you.